when Dr. Felix invited me to be a part of this, I was very excited because the book, The Measure of a Man by Gene Getz, is one of my favorite books of all time. And it's interesting because when I was in college aeons ago, I was brought through that particular book and trained through it. And then most recently, I had a small group this last year of 10 guys that I actually walked through that same book in the updated version, which has been like two or three times. So it's been a special book for me. In addition to that, in my doctoral studies, my emphasis was on the pastoral epistles. And so that's my focus, and that's what I've taught mostly. And in our field, we call it field apprenticeship classes at Talbot, we uh, actually go through all the pastoral epistles from First Timothy to Titus to Second Timothy as part of the training for our men in ministry. So when I was given this opportunity, and specifically this verse, I thought, wow, praise the Lord, an opportunity to share not only from the Word of God, but some of the experiences. Let me give you a preview of what we're going to be talking about. First of all, the why That's always important for us to know. Secondly, the background. Then the possible interpretations of this one verse. And when Dr. Felix sent the email and said, this is the verse, he goes, I know there's a lot of takes on this, so we're going to look at it. And again, it applies both to singles as well as married people. And then I'm going to land on an interpretation. And then last but not least, how do we maintain being the husband of one wife? So the verse comes from 1 Timothy 3.2 in the New American Standard NASB translation. says, an overseer then must be above approach, the husband of one wife. Why is this an important thing for a godly man and especially a leader to mimic and demonstrate in the church? Let me suggest three reasons. There's more, but here's just three that came to mind. Number one, it is what the word of God calls leaders to be. Obviously, leaders have a higher standard than the average person. I hope you understand this, and I love what Dr. Montoya says. Yes, no. What is the answer? Yes. A resounding yes. The Word of God is clear. It is the blueprint. It is the prescription for our lives. And the closer we follow it, the better we will be. Because the Word of God centers us into the will of God. Amen? And we want to be in the will of God, and the way that we know that is by the word of God. And so we need to make sure we know the Bible well. One of the things that I've been doing during the pandemic, I decided that I would read the entire Bible in different translations. Now, I'm not here to argue which one's better or worse or so forth. Let's just say there's a lot of translations out there. So I, believe it or not, started in the King James, thy, thou, and thine, it was great. And then I went to the CSB, don't judge the Baptist here. And then I went to the New American Standard 77, which has been a while. That's what I was raised on. And then most recently, I was part of the committee to work on the Legacy Standard Bible, which I am currently reading. It has been helpful but it's always resounding in the message. We need to be faithful to the word of God. Amen? Amen. And here's a second reason, letter B. It models to the watching world what biblical marriage and fidelity should look like. Faithfulness is lacking in society. 
And unfortunately, it's also lacking in the church. Yes, no, right? I feel like Montoya now, okay. But it shouldn't. You understand this, right? If the people of God don't uphold and maintain the word of God, then who is going to do that? The answer is no one. And so we've got to show the world what biblical marriage and godly manhood and husbandry and fatherhood looks like with fidelity, because otherwise nowhere else will they be able to see this. And again, again, I'm not wanting to go on too many tangents here, but do you see why so much is messed up even with same-sex marriage and everything? It's because the believers don't do marriage right biblically. And so we've got to pay attention to ourselves. We've got to come back to the word of God and follow what it says so the watching world can see what it looks like and then mimic us. So gentlemen, we have a huge responsibility. The onus is upon us to demonstrate this because they're not going to read the Bible, but they're going to read your lives. And so it's important for us to know and then demonstrate what it looks like. A third reason why this is an important topic, let us see, it keeps the man of God focused and out of trouble in order to carry out the gospel ministry. Focus is an important emphasis that we need to understand. It is linked to what Dr. Montoya talked about, about discipline. Focus is a part of discipline. Now, let me share with you a story about my own life. I did not get married until I was 41, rather late. I would mimic it or call it 40 years of wandering in the wilderness until I came to the promised land of my wife, okay? Sorry to allegorize there, but all of that to say one of the things that I'm happy to share, and I've shared this openly, is that I was able to maintain my virginity and so did my wife, and give that to each other as a gift on our wedding night. And the way that I was able to do it was in two, two sources that helped me to do that. One was the church that kept me accountable, and the other was the Word of God that kept me focused. And so if you are a single man this morning... Let me encourage you. I know you struggle, and more probably now than ever before, because there's more ways to sin now than ever before. But the word of God doesn't waver. It will keep you on track. It will keep you focused, and it will help you to be a one-woman man. I'm sure there are many more reasons why, but those are just three that I want to pose to you. Let's go to our first main point, and that's some background notes on this passage. William Mounts, some of you know him, he's the guy who's the Greek guy. He has a wonderful commentary in Word Biblical on the pastoral epistles. And this is an interesting statement that he makes. He says that it is first on the list, and then that Greek word is the above reproach word, as it is in Titus 1.6, beyond reproach, suggests that marital faithfulness is a serious problem in the Ephesian church. So some background here. The pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, was written to the church at Ephesus. Ephesus was the capital of Asia Minor. It was multicultural, and it was pluralistic. There's the Artemis cult and all these other weird things going on in that area. 
In the New Testament, when you see lists, they are usually listed in the order of priority. So, for example, whenever the disciples or the apostles are listed, Peter's always first. The fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, love is first. And then the rotten fruit of the flesh, morality is first in Galatians 5. It's interesting here that in this virtue list of the pastoral epistles, in the calling of an overseer, the first thing after above reproach is this idea of husband of one wife. In the Greek, it's here that's listed, it's mias gunaikas andra, and it's literally a one-woman man. John MacArthur, in his commentary on 1 Timothy, writes this, the overseer or elder first must be above reproach in relation to women. He must be the husband of one wife. The Greek text literally reads a one-woman man. Paul is not referring to a leader's marital status, as the absence of the definite article in the original indicates. Rather, the issue is his moral sexual behavior. This is kind of a clue what's going on here. And again, think about the background and the audience, right? The church at Ephesus, which is a pretty bad place, kind of like L.A., was pretty much what the audience was like, a big, uh, rambunctious city. But the author is Paul, and the recipient is a single young guy named Timothy who's now being handed over the mantle of leadership to this huge church. That's like saying, okay, uh, Dr. MacArthur is going to retire this next week. Who would like to take this position? Uh, that's a pretty high calling. In the same way, this is the same high calling, and Paul is preparing Timothy for this huge leadership transition. Let's go to number two, possible interpretations. The late Homer Kent, he's an older commentator in his book, The Pastoral Epistles, lays out five possible interpretations of this particular phrase. And again, uh, I don't, I'm not suggesting I hold to these. I'm just showing you what is listed here. So here's the first one. It's marriage to the church view. And this is the Roman Catholic allegorical interpretation. This is one of the reasons that priests are single, because they're not married to a woman necessarily, but they allegorize it and say the wife here is the bride, the church, and so they're connected and married to the church as opposed to a physical person. In this, it is one of the main reasons that they hold to this celibacy idea. Homer Kant makes this funny comment here that I put here. It says it's a rather clumsy attempt to protect the Romish doctrine of celibacy for priests. And if you follow Vatican II and what's going on right now, there's actually discussion where the current pope may overturn that and change that particular idea. We'll see if that happens or not. Again, clearly reject this particular interpretation. A second possible interpretation, letter B, is prohibition of polygamy. And again, polygamy was rampant in the first century, definitely. But while it was rampant in the culture, there's no indication that we see that it was rampant within the church. So in terms of its relationship and appropriateness and applicability, probably not related necessarily to the context of in the church. 
Now a few more possible, more likely interpretations. Letter C, prohibition of remarried widowers. In the olden days, and some of you have us have been there in the olden days, the idea is that you're married to one person forever. That's it. It's the one marriage idea. So in it, the idea that if someone passes away, if your spouse passes away, and for you to get remarried was not a accepted idea in generations past. That's what letter C is about. But again, if you read further in the pastoral epistles specifically, specifically 1 Timothy 5.14, Paul exhorts widows, and I want to suggest even widowers, to remarry. He says that these are younger widows, those who are younger. And again, the estimation is in the pastoral epistles, the older was probably in their 60s and the younger was probably in their 30s. It's not an exact thing because the scripture doesn't specifically say it, but culturally it's indicated it's probably somewhere in the 30s or 40s is someone who was considered younger. And again, they're able to remarry. Letter D, the exclusion of unmarried overseers. Now this one was a big one because again, my story was I was married, I was single for 40, 41 years. That's a long time. And again, in the Korean church, culturally, that's kind of a, kind of a look down upon idea. And so they, they would say these funny, um, kind of, uh, parabolic euphemisms. They would come up to me and say, is there any good news today? <laughs> As a literalist, I would say, well, yeah, my health is good. And Finances are sound, um, well, good. But what they were really asking was, have you hooked up? Are you going to get married anytime soon? And I had to be tutored in that to be able to understand what that really meant. Now, again, uh, one of the reasons, and this, this view is also called the must-be-married view, one of the reasons why this is probably an interpretation that should be rejected is because the author and the recipient Paul and Timothy were both single. And if you want to carry it further, then I guess Jesus wouldn't be able to qualify either. So I I don't think that is probably what's going on here. And again, in your churches, you probably may have overseers who are single and they've chosen the Paul and Jesus route. A more challenging one is letter E, the prohibition of divorce. Now, as a pastor, I'm seeing this. You are seeing it as well. Divorce is more commonplace today than ever before. And this is a sad commentary, but we seem to be trying to catch up to the percentage of the unsaved world in the saved world of the same problem. That speaks to a number of different things. Let me suggest to you that we think through this carefully, men, so that we don't make brash exclusions, okay? So just four things to think about. Number one, that prior to salvation, if they were an unbeliever and they were married and divorced, in some ways, they are not bound by the scriptures. So I have, I have, when I was in college, I was a member at Grace Community Church, and that's where I received my calling to be a pastor. And I learned I was there for seven years, had 
Dr. MacArthur wrote my first recommendation to my first church. And I just have to tell you a funny story about that because I was applying to a Korean church, okay? This is my first ministry, and I was mentored by the head elder of Grace Community Church, whose name was Ralph Wong, and then uh, he got me a recommendation from Dr. MacArthur. So I go to my first church, I go for an interview, and I wear my three-piece suit, and I have a you know, briefcase, because Korean churches are kind of formal, and the elders are there interviewing me. They're in shorts and wife beaters. And I'm like, did I not get this memo? What's going on here? So I thought, okay, this is going to be great. So I hand the letter over. I said, this is my recommendation from Dr. John MacArthur. And the elder says, who's that? He just tossed it. <laughs> my interview was one question. They said, when can you start? Now, gentlemen, if you ever ask that question, do not answer the way that I answered. I said, anytime. And they said, okay, you're starting tomorrow, April 1st, 1988. And I've been a fool ever since. <laughs> Back to our passage. There's a second idea of the prohibition of divorce here. There's actually, in the traditional idea of divorce and remarriage, there has been two clauses that have been allowable for there to be uh, a non-disqualification of overseers. The first is the number two here under E, due to adultery. So you could read about it in Matthew 19. If one of the members commits adultery, it is a considered by most scholars a release from the marriage. The second one on the second page, top number three, is due to des desertion, 1 Corinthians 7, 10 to 15. And let, let me just say this as a pastor who has worked with couples who have gone through both. It, it is awfully painful to watch. And if I could just give you an exhortation on how to talk to them, you, you can't really explain those things. I think the best ministry that you can do as a pastor is presence ministry, to sit with them, to cry with them, to be with them, and to reassure them that as long as they have been right with the Lord, that God continues to love them faithfully. There is a third idea, and I want to cite something here that I think would be worth your study I was introduced to this about three years ago from Dr. Wayne Grudem. He has a small booklet called What the Bible Says About Divorce and Remarriage, and in it he overviews the two exception clauses to divorce, which I just mentioned, adultery and desertion, but he poses a third one, which is due to abuse. And in it, he has referenced a specific verse, and I've listed it here for you, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15. It says, yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or the sister is not under bondage and in italics in such cases, but God has called us to peace. So the small phrase, in such cases, is the reference to the abuse. And what Dr. Grudem does in his section is he looks at that phrase in the Greek and he looks at it in light of classical Greek. And in all the classical Greeks, and he cites about seven different people, 
you'll see that all of those are abuses of some sort that were inappropriate. And so he strongly argues that a third possible exclusion to the whole divorce disqualification beyond adultery, beyond desertion, is abuse. And I found that actually fairly convincing. So again, here's the reference, and this is a small book, and uh, in my pastoral ministry classes, my students actually read this book and do evaluation of it as well. All right, so I've tried to show you the five positions of interpretation. Again, most of them I do not follow. So let me land number three with the interpretation, and I think that this will hopefully be clear for you. So again, I want to uh, mention John MacArthur and William Mounts. MacArthur says this, a one-woman man is a man devoted in his heart and mind to the woman who is his wife. He loves, desires, and thinks only of her. He maintains sexual purity in both his thought life and his conduct. And I didn't ask Dr. Montoya, but when I heard him share this morning, I believe that is probably where he lands as well. So I'll have to confirm that afterwards. William Mounts goes on to say this, the translation one woman man maintains the emphasis on one, which is the Mia word, and carries over what seems to be Paul's emphasis on faithfulness. Now, with that interpretation, let me kind of parse that out for you and suggest what that looks like. First, if you are single, don't date every female in the congregation. And again, if I could speak to millennials, don't be a player. I thought it was funny that Dr. Montoya said, don't date one person at a time continuously. That's what he was suggesting. And I think that's exactly right. So again, from my time as a single, and I was pastoring at the time, it was interesting because I was teaching and doing premarital counseling with couples. Now you're saying, how can a single guy who wasn't married do this? I just taught the stuff from the Bible. I didn't have the experience, but I was also bringing in other couples to kind of mentor the people, and it worked out really well. uh, Of course, I would say it's better since I do premarital with my wife. I've done 289 weddings up to date, and I have another one scheduled on February 25th. So it's always a blessing, and I get to marry a lot of pastors, so that's also a real joy for me. But again, if you are single, let me suggest to you, a one-woman man means that you're not going to go around and date everyone around you. Let me share with you an interesting story. I have two sons. My oldest is 17. My youngest is 14. We went to my youngest son's soccer game recently on Thursday, and um, they were playing, and then his best friend was there. And and after the game... um, a girl comes up and says to my friend, son, oh, this is my girlfriend. And I looked at her, and they're like 14, right? And so I asked my son, I said, hey, did your friend, that's his girl. I don't remember her. And he said, yeah, that's a different girlfriend. I said, okay, how long have they been dating? A month. I said, didn't he have another girlfriend like two months ago? The answer was yes. Wasn't there a different girl like three months ago? Yes. And my son said, yeah, 
my friend has too many girlfriends. Listen, friends, I'm concerned because the guy's only 14. And when you date and break up and date and break up, you are essentially practicing divorce. And at an early age like that, where you can't show monogamous faithfulness, even though it's not marriage, if you can't do it in the pattern of singleness, how do you expect to be able to do it in marriage? Again, I hate to say this, but in my experience, when I've seen guys who were players, it's pretty hard, if not almost impossible, to break that habit. I don't know if it's a man thing or more a sin thing. It's probably a combination of both. But if I can exhort you, single men, don't get into bad habits. Don't make bad choices that will catch up with you and you will regret later on when you try to maintain a monogamous, faithful marriage. It's going to hurt you. Now for the married men, letter B. If you are married, let me just say it clearly. Be monogamous. Be faithful to your wife. In Ephesians chapter 5, there's a lot of exhortations. And if you have your Bible, let me just reference that to you because there's so much here that speaks to our situation and our circumstance. In Ephesians 5, starting in verse 25, you know this passage well. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The parallel is quite interesting because it speaks to the unconditionality and the sacrifice of Christ to the church that parallels the husband to the wife. Notice it doesn't say, husbands love your wives if she's really beautiful after the wedding day. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say, husbands love your wives if she's nice to you. It doesn't say that. It's period. It's an imperative. Husbands love your wives, period. And what does that look like? Number of things. Giving yourself up for her. Verse 26, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Let me just say this, okay? We think that we can lead our wives in a godly manner, but we try to do that void of the Bible. And when you do that, all that is is behavioral modification or moralism because it's not grounded in the word of God and it's certainly not led by the spirit of God. When you are grounded in the word of God, women will know the difference because you're doing it as what First Peter 3 says, in an understanding manner, it's cherishing her and upholding her as a co-heir in the riches of Christ. If we're going to lead, we've got to do it in a biblical way. Don't do it in an unbiblical manner in the name of Christ when it has nothing to do with Christ or the Bible. Let's read on further, verse 27. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of the body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. 
from Genesis, right? The mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. I probably don't need to ask you this, but let me go ahead. Don't you love yourself? I think it's a resounding yes. I'm preaching to the choir, right? And if you do, Scripture extends it and says, then love your wife as much as you love yourself. You know, when I got married, and again, got married rather late, I thought I was a pretty selfless person. And then I got married. (laughs) One of the first things that marriage really exposes is how selfish we really are. And isn't it interesting that the Gospels and Jesus' teaching says, deny yourself, take up the cross, follow him. Jesus knows something way before and way beyond what we know. And sometimes we have to experience before it becomes a reality in our lives. Let's land on our last point here, and that's practical application. So how should we do this? I will say that in the last two years and probably in the last two months, I have had more pastors and leaders in my office who have failed morally than I can ever remember in my 30 years of teaching at Talbot. It has been really sad. I don't think the pandemic was causal to this. I think it just exposed it. It had always been happening. And so now in my pastoral classes, I teach this kind of stuff, how to safe-proof your marriage, your purity, and your relationship. So again, we're talking about how to be a one-woman man, whether single or married. Here are some possible suggestions or applications. First letter A, accountability. Having a band of brothers who you can talk with, who you can be real with. In the 60s, we would say, let your hair down. Some of us, that may be a little more challenging today, but that's okay. (laughs) But the whole idea, you understand the metaphor, right? It means just being real, being genuine. For many of you who are in pastoral ministry, it won't be with your congregation members. That might be disruptive in some way. So I have a group of fellow professors and fellow pastors that I meet with on a regular basis, and we share about all of our hardships. We need to have that outlet. So let me just share with you another thought here. And the accountability needs to extend into friendship. So in the last couple of years, as you've seen pastors and Christian musicians and apologists fail and fall, I looked at the trends and there was one common denominator with every one of them. And do you know what that was? They had no friends. They had gotten so high and above that they were untouchable. And no one was asking the right questions. So in my classes at Talbot now, in the pastoral ministry classes, and in all of the other classes that I teach, I do a project called the Friendship Project. They have to, during the course of the semester, make friends. And so they have to study with them, they have to pray with them, share a meal with them, have fun with them, encourage one another. Now, some of the students, they love it. They're like, oh, I can do that. This, this is easy. It's an easy assignment. Others go, oh, 
why do I have to do this? Those are the guys that I worry about. Because I tell them, what you learn in seminary is a precursor of what you will do post-seminary. And so let me exhort you. Who are your friends? Who do you turn to? Who's on speed dial for you if you're in trouble? I have several people. Do you have any? It's going to be important for you to have a band of brothers for accountability. Let me define what accountability means. It means helping people keep their responsibilities. Helping people keep their responsibilities. And if you're married, one of your responsibilities is to be faithful. If you're single and dating, it's to be faithful to that single person. A second way to maintain this letter B, safety measures. And I put filters, and then I put computer and phone access. Although I have a password on my computer and on my phone, I have given that to my wife and even to my kids. And I said, you can look at it anytime, all the time, every time, without even me telling you, asking permission. Now, this started because we, we didn't give our kids phones until they were 13. We wanted to hold off as long as possible. Even all their friends were getting phones at like six, six years old or something like that. Something ridiculous like that, right? And so we had a passcode on there. And so I gave my boys the passcode to my phone. Wouldn't it have been shameful if there was something on there that my boys would see? Pastor Ben, what is this? I just was unwilling to be that and to do that. And so I just kept that clean. Same with my computer. My wife can use my, she used it last night. And again, I just say, I wonder if you would have the assurance that if some random person says, I've got to look at your computer, that you could do it with a clear conscience. Filters are helpful. Access is helpful. Have other people see what you're looking at. Letter C, clear and current schedules. Make it known to your spouse and the public. My wife knows that I'm here right now, exhorting you men. I know where my wife is. She's in cold Denver, Colorado, doing a women's retreat. I know where my boys are. And part of the reason we know is because we've communicated it, number one, and we've written it down on the refrigerator where everyone frequents during the week. I'm a person of habit. If you know me, my schedule is very exact. And uh, so much so that if I go to a restaurant, I go to the same restaurants, sit in the same seats, and order the same thing. And so I walk in and the waitress says, oh, you want the enchilada dinner? Okay, yeah, here it is. <laughs> so let me say this, I'm predictable. I think that's a good thing. Now, I'm also an only child. Any other only children in the house? Okay. So there's a blessing to that. You don't fight with your siblings, and I guess you get into the spoiled. But there's a downside to it, which now I've seen as a blessing in the end. My parents were super overprotective of me. 
So when I would come home, going into high school, they would ask me, where were you? You passed the curfew, it's eight o'clock. <laughs> what were you doing? Who were you with? And I would have to give a full out report to my parents. When I moved out of the house and I lived with roommates, you know what happened? I started doing that to my roommates. <laughs> I actually became the parent. So I would be waiting in the living room. My friends would walk in. I'd say, where were you? And they're like, why do you want to know? What are you hiding? <laughs> I carried that into my marriage. So I would come home. I would sit down with my wife, Jen, and I'd say, Jen, can I tell you what I did today? And it wasn't really a question. It's like just kind of introduction. Here's what I'm going to tell you. And I would tell her, I met with this person, I ate this, I went there, I had some coffee, I did this, and I just went through. And my poor wife, she's listening to, she's now, can you give me the cliff notes, if you know what that is? That's the reduced version. <laughs> but in 19 years of marriage, that's kept us safe. Because she knows exactly what I do, I know exactly what she does, where I am, and so forth. We even use the iPhone Finder app, you know, that one that, so that we can keep track of ourselves and our boys. It's not that we don't trust each other, it's just knowing that helps increase the faithfulness. And that's something you might want to try. Now, singles and married men, letter D. This is something I learned from my faculty members at Talbot as they would share on how to deal with men's desires and overload on testosterone, I realized that they all of a sudden started working out feverishly. And they weren't trying to get cut. They were trying to be faithful. So I asked them, hey, how come you're lifting weights so much? And one of the guys, a guy named J.P. Moreland, he said, well, Ben... Let's have this talk. And he sat me down in a fatherly way and said, this is why. And I'm so thankful for that. Now, in my broken body, I'm not able to work out as much, but at least walk some, and that really helps me to get some of the stuff out of my system. Which leads to letter E, healthy marriage and intimacy. This is for married people, of course. And in so doing, it's a regular pattern 1 Corinthians 7, 5 says, do not deprive yourself of one another, of course, only through prayer. But in so doing, you want to have these healthy rhythms because it actually connects you in your soul as well as in your body. You know, in marriage, the idea is that two become one flesh, right? And so the question is, how do you not only enter into one flesh, but how do you maintain that one flesh? Well, I want to suggest all the things that I've just highlighted for you are ways but, of course, consummation of intimacy is yet another way. So I want to encourage you to, if you haven't talked about this with your wife, that you would at least do so, pray about it, and revisit it if necessary. And last but not least, of course, prayer and the other spiritual disciplines. The Word of God, silence, confession, and fellowship. L let me just add to that wisdom. So wisdom on discernment. 
So I'm a pastor, so I will not meet with a woman one-on-one. That's just, that's just one of my policies. If a woman wants to meet either with my wife, the two of us, or my wife will take it. Um, even as a single guy, I didn't meet with women. I just thought that was unwise. And if I had to, I would do it in a really loud place with lots of people. I'm thankful that at our school we have an open-door policy, so if students want to come in, not only do I leave the door open, but I have office mates which I tell them, hey, I have a female coming in, I want you to listen in and just watch us just to make sure that nothing weird happens. Just being wise. If you are in youth ministry, don't take females home in your car. I don't ride with females in the car. That's just wisdom. I do like the Billy Graham rule of not going into an elevator one-on-one. I think that's wise as well. I know the world looks down upon that and says that's foolish or misogynistic. I don't think so. I think it's just wise. Let me exhort you to be wise as you employ all of these different applications and in so doing that you will be able to maintain being a one-woman man. One final thought, and then I'll open it up. I think we have some time for Q&A. Probably for most of us, this idea is one of the biggest challenges that we have just because how we're wired naturally and if we let ourselves go without the spirits harnessing us, we could really go down a really dark trail. So I know this. This is true for you. It's true for me. Statistically, it speaks to it and so forth. It is unfortunate that many men have fallen who are in ministry because they have violated this, and it's scary. I think we should have a healthy fear of God that, again, the exhortation that we heard in our last message, that it will take a lifetime to build your reputation and literally a moment to destroy it. That is so true. I've seen it. I've witnessed it. I've even come close to it. So I say to you, and I earnestly plead with you, brothers, Please, if you see trouble, as fast as you can, go the other direction and run away. Flee from those things, O man of God. Well, that's all I have. So maybe take some questions. I think we have maybe five minutes or so. Your name, sir. Hi, David. A young, le- oh, thank you. When I was a young, young, maybe eight, nine years old, I used to watch those James Bond movies. And I thought, wow, you know, but that was Hollywood's ideal of a ideal man, you know, playboy lifestyle, beautiful women, beautiful cars. Mm-hmm. And no, I mean, it's just, I think a lot of that had to do, I mean, as far, and when I grew up, unfortunately, I tried it, but because of the grace of God, I found out, no, not James Bond, it's Jesus Christ who I want to mm-hmm. role model. So. That's yeah. another thing. I think Hollywood has, unfortunately. Yeah, thank you, David. You're thank welcome. you. You know, uh, when my boys were young, and I wish they would still do this, we would we're, we still watch regular TV, okay? No, no one does that anymore, right? But when they would have commercials of, like, scantily clad women, you know what my boys used to do? They would jump in front of the screen and say, No, Dad. I wish I had filmed that because they were so innocently 
careful and blameless and want to protect me. Uh, now, they don't do that anymore, but I'm just saying, man, that was a great memory and a reminder that we can just, if we just are laxed, we're going we're gonna to fall. So thank you, David, for that comment. Anyone else? Right here. Yes, sir. Uh, yes, we, uh, you had covered um, what Jesus had said in Matthew. Matthew 19. Uh, you, were, you were talking about, at the moment, you were talking about, um, I guess, a potential different look at young women remarrying. Oh, the First Timothy five one. Yeah, or or, or the divorce, uh, and if the young, if the man, Jesus says, for sexual immorality, it's okay to leave, right? More From Matthew nineteen. Yes. yes. And so, um, has the needle moved on that any, or you, you know what I'm saying? In terms of you being a person who has talked to people, and are you? encouraging uh, forgiveness of that or if she's has enough ground to leave anyway you know what I mean how would you how would you yeah. talk about that yes tell me your name first sir uh, my name's Adrian Chivers Adrian yes when you say move the needle can you explain it well I'm I mean sure what that means I exactly. mean in terms of move the needle has um, is there any doubt about that in terms of, well, you don't have to always divorce if there's... Oh, okay. You got what I mean? Yes, yes. Or uh, is that what we're, yeah. as, 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 as ministers and pastors, right, actually right. saying? Good question, Adrian. Thank you. My answer to you is this, that the three exception clauses mean that those would be potentially justifiable biblically if one wanted to go through divorce. It's not saying that one has to get divorced, and certainly there is a factor of forgiveness that can and hopefully will happen with potentiality for reconciliation. But in so doing, it's not guaranteed. So in the needle of allowance for people to stay in the marriage, even though they've violated these things, certainly we are hopeful that that can happen and it's salvageable and redeemable, and we've worked with couples who've done that. But part of it, it, it could also mean if one, if the spouse is unwilling to stop and the frequency is continuing and even deeper, that becomes the problem, which now they're not repentant. So if they're not repentant, they can't be restored. So that's, that's how I would answer that. Comment or question, sir? Hello, my name is William Foster. Hi, William. And uh, my question is, I was dating a girl at my church, and uh, and we kind of broke up. And uh, so should I continue to pursue that or, or uh, pursue her or pursue another woman, which I'm not sure what no, you're asking. Should I, should, I, should I go back to her? Because you said... Uh, that uh, I shouldn't. Yeah. Are you, know, you are you the pastor, sir? No. You, cognition member. Uh, you you're asking if I'm the pastor? Yes. No, I'm not the okay. pastor. No. Uh, 
The reason I ask you that question, William, is because I think there's a little different standard in the sense that if you're the pastor up front preaching all the time, mm-hmm. that you are kind of front and center. So, and rightfully so, we are going to be scrutinized a little bit more intently than someone who's just sitting in the pews. The standard is still the same, though, in that you probably should be careful if you do go back to the church. I don't know about your situation with the young lady. But probably what I would say is lay low for a little bit, grow spiritually, and be ready to hopefully do this better the next time so that it might uh, turn into something longer and lasting. Okay, thank you. Thank you for that question. We had a question right here, sir. Yes, sir. Good morning, Dr. Chen. Thank you, uh, sir, much uh, for your presentation, sir. It's very, uh, very good. Uh, I want to uh, just build on what uh, the gentleman uh, asked before uh, in the area of the possible interpretations. Yes. Uh, specifically, uh, the ones you categorized as the three uh, exceptions. Three uh, possibilities, yes. Three possible exceptions, yes, sir, and that's, that's very key. Uh, because generally, there is a biblical admonition against divorce, Right. Very, very strongly. And although Jesus does, you know, Matthew 19 being what it is, certainly it says it, it can possibly be justified. Uh, so my question to you, sir, is, is do you think in your experience uh, as a pastor and as a teacher and as a preacher and as, as a godly man, um, do we now, especially in light of the Amos example uh, with adultery, it, it didn't matter. Go get your wife. Go back and get your wife. She left again. Go back and get your wife. Um, with that example, would you say that these days, and you started out earlier saying that these days divorce is more rampant than ever. So would you say as a church, have we capitulated uh, a bit, uh, you know, to the society and that now we make it more acceptable? Now we give our blessings more easily for uh, a man to put his wife away, for a man to to divorce his wife, rather than uh, try to pursue uh, peace and uh, reconciliation uh, at any and all costs. Yes, yes. Well, I feel the hook coming here really soon, so I... It's more than the hook. (laughs) (laughs) I hate to tell you, I know that was a good question. Good question. We could talk. The next session one. starts at ten thirty, and so let's here, talk. I would love to answer that question, but I'm sorry, we're yeah, out of sorry. time. No, it's okay. Yeah. Thank you, guys. Uh, yeah. Time to get to your questions.